On the 14th of May 1915, the London Times newspaper ran a story. It claimed that the British Army on the Western Front was so short of shells that it was having to ration its artillery guns to firing just for a day. Now, the person writing this stuff, the Times military correspondent Charles Accord Reppington, was a very well-informed ex-army officer. And this story had been leaked to him from the very top. It had come from Sir John French, the general in command on the Western Front. So we should believe what the story says. But does that mean that we should also accept the accusation the British Army was trying to make? That the catastrophic months, the roster of defeat after defeat since the start of the war and the grimly climbing lists of casualties had all been the fault of the British government. Hello, good to see you at the History Cafe. This is where we come to talk about historical stories everyone knows. We want to try out some new ideas. I'm Penelope Middlebow. And I'm John Roseback, and we're revisiting stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. In this series, we're trying to understand the causes of the terrible slaughter that overtook the British Army, culminating in the Battle of the Somme in the summer of 1916. The first day of the Battle of the Somme, 1st of July 1916, was the worst day in the British Army's history. Well, it's already become painfully clear that the Army's failure had its origins decades before the war even began. British generals had completely failed to understand that any war in the 20th century would be a war of trenches. But then the army was led by men who'd risen to their positions not through any ability, but through their connections. Puffed up with the privileges of British gentlemen, they refused to take orders, or to master new weapons, or to study new military methods. As we've seen, they'd not begun to evolve tactics for trench warfare. They hadn't even equipped themselves with the right weapons. They'd refused to buy more than a few machine guns. They'd time and again turned down the idea of developing tanks. All they were interested in was their horses. But by far the British Army's worst mistake was its failure to take any notice of the overwhelming evidence that was presented to it. Evidence that showed not only that modern war would quickly develop into trenches, but that to break a modern trench system you need heavy artillery, big guns firing heavy explosive shells. It was no good sending men running towards the Germans, if you hadn't first put the enemy machine guns, their deep underground dugouts and their artillery out of action. And for that, the only weapon you could use before the invention of heavy bomber aircraft was big artillery guns. As a direct result of their lack of big guns, British attacks against the German trenches in 1914 and 1915 had ended up with nothing but unimaginable British casualties. In fact, without proper artillery, these infantry attacks should never have been launched. During the attack on Neuve-Chapelle in early March 1915, 12 men were killed for every metre taken. On the 9th of May at Aubert, the British had gone down to another humiliating failure with enormous casualties. Even the British generals could see that the contrast with the French army was sobering. In the days before the attack on Aubert and a few miles to the south at Vimy, the French had advanced a whole two miles along four miles of front before they were eventually pushed back. 
The difference, as British commander Sir John French had realised, was that before they'd even tried to advance a single step, the French had smashed the German lines with a quarter of a million shells. So the advancing French troops were attacking a German trench system that had already been on the verge of collapse. Well, the conclusion the British generals drew was simple. Blame the government. Of course. So Sir John French leaked to the Times the damning statistic on the British shortage of artillery shells. Well, so far as it went, it was true. The Germans were making a quarter of a million shells a day. The British could manage just 22,000. No wonder, suggested the Times, British infantry attacks weren't getting anywhere. Without artillery, they didn't have a hope of softening up the German trenches first. The Liberals, under Prime Minister Asquith, had never made any proper preparations for a war on this scale. But was the repeated failure of the British Army really the government's fault? The British Army had tried to dress up their succession of hopeless attacks as a strategy of attrition, wearing down the Germans little by little. They blustered that their own heavy losses didn't matter because there were, quotes, plenty more men in England. They mumbled that in the end they would win because their men were morally superior to the Germans. But as attack after attack failed in 1915, it was becoming horribly obvious that the British Army was in fact in a hopeless situation and that it only had itself to blame. As we saw in our series on why Britain joined the war in 1914, it had been the army that had behind the scenes pushed the politicians into declaring war in support of the French. The British generals couldn't wait to cross to France, promising the French that between them they could score a quick victory over the Germans. The problem was the British Army had crossed the Channel with none of the right weapons, let alone the tactics, to engage in a modern war. At an Anglo-French conference at a Boulogne hotel on the 9th of June 1915, nearly a year into the war, a senior British commander, one Douglas Haig, finally admitted that it wasn't worth launching any more British attacks until they had a thousand heavy guns. At that time, depends how you calculate it, but the British had fewer than a hundred. The Germans had 3,300. British attacks would get precisely nowhere until they had the heavy guns to blast the German defences to pieces before they tried attacking them. The truth was that the shortage of shells was only a small part of the problem. The reason that there was so little industrial capacity to make shells in Britain was, of course, that the British Army had never expected to need them. They hadn't yet bothered to acquire the big guns to fire them or the know-how to use them. But as 1915 dragged on and the French army threw itself at the German invaders and lost hundreds of thousands of men, the French generals loudly demanded that the British do something to help. What could the British do? They couldn't just sit around like some feckless lad who's forgotten his games kit, watching the French do all the fighting, while they scrambled to re-equip themselves for modern warfare and worked out from scratch what they were supposed to do. One historian, William Philpott, has called it, perhaps rather generously, the British Army's strategic paradox. Well, paradox or not, the result was that instead, the British Army made feeble excuses about attrition and moral superiority and tried to blame the government. And meanwhile, it launched attack after hopeless attack and threw its young soldiers' lives away in the vain hope that something would turn up. In September 1915, for example, they attacked the Germans at Los in France. This was after, you remember, Haig had said they should do no more attacks until they had far more guns. This time, the British artillery bombarded the Germans with a quarter of a million shells. They flew ten squadrons of spotter planes to try and direct their artillery. But 
only 22,000 of the shells they fired were high explosive. The rest were shrapnel, which had been, as you may remember from a previous discussion, developed for attacking cavalry in the years before Napoleon Bonaparte. Shrapnel was useless against modern defences. Half the heavy guns the British were using had anyway been out of date before the war had even started. Well, the British gunnery was so inaccurate and so ineffective that by the time the British infantry was poised to advance, the Germans, deep in their underground dugouts, hadn't even realised that there had been a bombardment. It's just too awful. Well, it would be funny if it weren't so terrible. Douglas Haig, in command on the ground at Los, hoped that this time, however, he would make up for the lack of artillery by using a new weapon, poison gas. But of course, a moment's thought and you realise that you can't time and coordinate a huge and complicated attack on the basis of poison gas, because it completely depends which way the wind's blowing. So, miles back from the front, Haig famously got one of his officers to light a cigarette on the morning planned for the attack. He watched the smoke for a minute and reckoned the wind, though gusty, was pretty much in the right direction to blow the gas towards the Germans. He sent the order to advance. And within minutes, the wind dropped. He tried to cancel everything, but it was, of course, too late. Most of the gas hung around in no man's land, or worse, blew back into the British trenches. The attack was the usual fiasco. Another humiliating failure with an unimaginable number of casualties. That's not a story I was told at school when I was studying First World War poems. Mm. It was only in November 1915, when the winter weather finally closed in, that these futile, large-scale attacks ended. Not, of course, that the generals wanted the men in the trenches to relax. Sir John French, in command of the Western Front for the first 17 months of the war, instructed his commanders to order small-scale trench raids, which would, he explained, quote, relieve the monotony and improve the morale of our troops. I'm sure it did, yeah. Quickly, he imagined, perhaps remembering his days at prep school in Harrow, a keen spirit of rivalry and emulation would appear. Oh, it's so awful. By the end of the year, the British had lost 285,000 men and gained virtually nothing at all. Sir John French was sacked. What he didn't know was that an old friend had secretly been pulling strings all along to get rid of him and take his job. You guessed... Douglas Haig. Douglas Haig. Both Haig and his sister, after all, were friends of the king. And you got where you got in the pyjama by pulling strings. Haig's wife was, in fact, a lady-in-waiting to the queen. And then, for all his bluster in the summer about big guns, Haig enthusiastically continued the policy of throwing men's lives away over the winter months in suicidal trench raids. He called it winter sports. So... The army's transparent attempt to blame the British government for the whole fiasco, saying it was all due to the lack of shells, was about as accurate as the British artillery, which is to say, a long way off the mark. It was not the government's fault. The story in the Times did start to get the munitions production moving much faster back in England. But the question was, even if there were more shells to fire, would the British army be able to haul itself sufficiently into the 20th century to be able to use them? (laughs) 
in May 1915, the British Army leaked to the press that it was desperately short of high-explosive shells. Well, it was true, and it was a result of the Army's own complete failure to foresee the crucial role that heavy artillery would play in modern warfare. But back in Britain, it created a political scandal. Famously, the revelations in the press led to a government reshuffle with David Lloyd George put in charge of a brand new Ministry of Munitions. Now, this is usually regarded as a great success. By 1916, we're told the shortage of shells was over. (sighs) That, of course, was the story Lloyd George and the government wanted the public to hear. The truth, as the Australian historian Jackson Hughes and others have shown, is very different. Just making shells got you nowhere if you didn't have the guns from which to fire them. And the British were chronically, desperately short of heavy guns. After the shells scandal in the press in May 1915, ambitious proposals to build new guns were bandied around the government departments. It's a complicated story, but the short version is that it was discovered that Britain lacked the factories, the skilled workers and even the steel to make big guns. The Americans, of course, offered to make some at three times the price, but their main factory was destroyed by Saboteur in November 1915. So hardly any of the new guns were ever actually made. You recall that Douglas Haig had categorically declared at the Hotel in Boulogne on the 9th of June 1915 that there should be no further British attack without 1,000 heavy guns and a proper supply of high-explosive shells. When a big attack was planned for the summer of 1916 on the Somme... Haig, of course, was now in charge of the army. It was his first big attack. Haig now reckoned he would need even more. He would need 1,792 heavy guns, to be precise. But in the event, he only had 427. And nearly half of these were old and useless. According, therefore, to Haig's own analysis, the attack on the Somme, as he planned it, was doomed from the start. It should never have been launched. So why do we say that half of his guns were useless? Okay, stand by for some pretty black humour. You find the information in all its relentless detail in Jackson Hughes' Australian doctoral thesis. Big guns recoil when they're fired. We've all seen the old film footage with guns rocking and rolling about on their wheels. But this is a problem. A gun is useless if it's not aimed or registered accurately. And with big guns of the First World War, that was a matter of trial and error. It always took several shots to hit the target. But if each time the gun rocked out of position, then each time you were having to register it from scratch. You'd only ever hit the target by luck. Luck. So guns have recoil mechanisms to absorb the shock of firing while keeping them in the same place. Old guns had springs. Newer British ones had hydraulic systems using a glycerin mixture. As you can imagine, both systems quickly wore out and needed replacing. But the British simply didn't have the spare parts to do it. Now, the French had pneumatic recoil systems. Like a wonderful Citroën car. John loves Citroëns, which were much tougher. But the British ignored that idea until after the Battle of the Somme. So as we've all seen in the films, the guns rocked about and it was next to impossible to register or aim them at all. Anyway, guns only shoot straight by spinning the shells. It's called rifling and it's achieved by a corkscrew pattern inside the barrel. But of course, the more it's fired, the more the barrel gets worn down. Finally, it stops spinning the shells at all, which then fly off in random directions and curves. Big guns therefore have a limited lifespan and their barrels have to be completely replaced. But you guessed, the British had very little manufacturing capacity to make new barrels. Up to a third of British heavy guns were therefore out of action at any one time. 
A third. One battery's guns were so inaccurate that their shells were landing over a mile from their targets. I mean, that's just ridiculous. So even though Haig had technically 427 heavy guns at the Somme, depends how you calculate it, only 227 of them were even vaguely accurate. It was calculated that on average it took British gunners 100 shots to hit a target. As Haig himself had said the year before, under these circumstances, no attack should have been attempted. Which is outrageous. But that's not all. Up to a third of the shells fired by the British were duds. They didn't explode. Lloyd George had opened government factories to fill shells with explosives. It was a dangerous job that made the workforce sick. And Lloyd George famously persuaded women to do it. It's a story we discuss in our series on the suffragettes. And of course, that story is very different from the one we've all been led to believe. But in the rush to make and fill shells, quality control was abandoned. The metal casings of the shells were delivered to the government factories in such different sizes and shapes that many were useless and many more were impossible to aim correctly. The women munitions workers were risking their health doing a dangerous job which men refused to do, but much of what they were doing was a waste of time. It makes you cry. And then there was the explosive. When the war broke out, the British Army had been going over to using modern TNT in high explosive. But, of course, they hadn't been taking heavy artillery seriously at all. If you want any proof, well, look at this. Key elements of TNT were being manufactured where, do you suppose? In Germany. In Germany. <laughs> the very country the British Army had been working behind the scenes to get into a war with since 1905. The French, of course, already had a solution to the problem, a mixture called Amatol. But as usual, it took the British Army months to accept it. They then ignored French production experience, with the result that for many more months, the Amatol was wrongly packed into shells and frequently didn't explode. Amatol also explodes without smoke, making it impossible for spotters to see where the shell landed. It took the British Army until April 1916 to even request that smoke indicators be added to them. And it was many more months long after the Somme before the new smoking shells got to the front lines. And then there were the fuses. In their shells, the army used percussion fuses, which exploded on impact, and timed fuses, which exploded after a set interval. Timed fuses could be used in shrapnel shells to hit barbed wire, but it was very difficult to do. Much better to have a fuse sufficiently sensitive to go off when the shell hit the wire. Uh, but it took months for the army to develop a so-called graze fuse, and even then, as you would imagine, many of these very sensitive fuses went off while they were being loaded into the gun, or being fired, destroying the gun and killing the crew. About one in 5,000 shells went off before they'd been fired, or as they were being fired. The shells for some of the howitzers were so prone to these prematures, as they were called, that the gunners called their batteries suicide clubs. Of course, the French had largely solved the problem. About one in a 100,000 of their shells went off prematurely, but yet again the British ignored French advice. Meanwhile, many of these graze fuses turned out to be useless, with the shell going too far beyond the wire before it exploded. 
Historian Peter Barton has also shown that the British Army should have been using a different kind of fuse in its heavy explosive shells. Now, schoolchildren are always taught that the eight-day bombardment with which the Battle of the Somme began unexpectedly failed to kill many Germans, and especially their machine gun crews, and the reason was largely because the Germans turned out to have been sheltering in deep concrete dugouts. Many of them had running water, electricity, furniture. In one on the Somme, the British even later discovered a piano. The British shells therefore landed on the trenches, their percussion fuses exploded them, and the German soldiers were safe metres below. In the months before the Somme, the Germans, fully aware that an attack was coming, deepened their dugouts to at least seven metres, with two or three exits. They were also constructing shell-proof shelters for their ammunition. With British concrete, of course. But the fact was that the British Army had known about the German dugouts for many months before the Somme, and there was a relatively easy way to blow them up. But of course, you guessed, the British Army had been unwilling to use it. The so-called munitions crisis of 1915 had revealed that the British Army was short of high-explosive shells. But in reality, and much more important, the Army was short of the heavy guns to fire them. Wartime British industry lacked the capacity to make them, or the spare parts they continually needed. And the shells that now poured off the production lines were so badly made that a third failed to go off and others exploded as they were being loaded, killing the gun crews. They also had the wrong fuses to destroy the deep German underground dugouts. During 1915, Field Marshal Sir John French, then Commander-in-Chief on the Western Front, recommended fitting shells with delayed action fuses. Now, these shells wouldn't explode when they hit the ground, but thud several metres into the earth before blowing up. Even if they didn't score a direct hit on a German dugout, shock waves from the blast would destroy any that were nearby or concuss and entomb and poison the German soldiers with carbon monoxide. Now, you guessed it, delayed action fuses had been around for a long time. The British Royal Navy had used them for many years, shooting through ships' armour plating and exploding the ammunition magazines and engine rooms inside. Finally, for a few months in early 1916, the army also started using them. However, it was not as a way of hitting the deep German dugouts. It was simply a temporary solution to the problem of prematures, the shrapnel shells that exploded as they were being loaded. The artillery apparently failed to recognise the value of delayed action fuses in high explosive shells against the German dugouts. In fact, the artillery complained that now their shells weren't exploding until they were underground and were therefore no use for hitting enemy artillery batteries, which were of course above ground. To which the answer was... You were supposed to use different fuses for different purposes. On 21st of June 1916, as a result of the gunners' protests, two days, that is, before the bombardment on the Somme was due to begin, the War Office confirmed that the delayed action fuses were being withdrawn. Why? They assured the gunners that there was now no longer a problem with prematures, shells going off as they were being loaded. But no mention was made of using delayed action fuses on underground bunkers. According to historians Robin Pryor and Trevor Wilson, quotes, the artillerists were delighted not to have the delayed action fuses anymore. But of course, the Germans were now completely safe once more in their underground dugouts. I suspect they were delighted too. 
So let's just sum up. On the eve of the Somme, the British had far too few guns, and most of the ones they had were the wrong sort. Too many small field guns, far too few heavy guns, and virtually no guns big enough to reach the furthest German batteries. The guns had the wrong sort of recoil mechanisms, and their barrels were worn out, so they had become grossly inaccurate. They were still firing the wrong shells. Three quarters of them were shrapnel, useless against heavy defences, and only one quarter high explosives. Up to a third of the high explosive shells were made incorrectly and wouldn't explode. Uh, field guns were firing shells fitted with fuses that were often too inaccurate to destroy barbed wire. The heavy guns were firing shells that were not fitted with delayed action fuses, so they could never reach the underground German bunkers. Oh, and there was no smoke, so the spotters couldn't see where the shells landed. <laughs> Now, if you were an apologist for the British Army, you might try to say that much of this was beyond the control of General Haig and his commanders on the Somme. In fact, historians who've pointed the problem out have been called grumpy old men. But even if it were true that Haig had no control over his artillery... Which would be shocking enough. It would be beside the point. The grisly events of 1915 had shown beyond any doubt that no amount of jumping out of trenches and running towards the Germans could possibly produce any result, except mass British death, if the bombardment, for whatever reason, had not first cut the German wire and destroyed a large proportion of the German dugouts, machine guns and artillery batteries. The conclusion is simple and it signifies a paradigm shift in our understanding of the Battle of the Somme. If Haig had to order an attack at all, he should have ordered it only along a section of front short enough for the very limited British artillery to do a decent job of breaking down the German defences. Anything beyond that, well, it was knowingly to invite the terrible slaughter of his own men. In the event the British infantry went into battle at the start of the Somme in extremely unfavourable terrain, with much of the German wire intact, the dugouts and artillery untouched by British bombardment, and nothing but tin hats to protect them. It was as if, as Morris Hankey, secretary to the Committee of Imperial Defence, the body and overall command of the war, wrote in his diary at the beginning of May 1916, the army want another regular orgy of slaughter this summer. And it's no good saying that hundreds of thousands of deaths in a war, like hundreds of thousands of deaths in a pandemic, are acceptable because the people in charge are doing their best. Hmm. When you look behind the scenes, you discover that the problems facing the British had been without doubt, and still were, and still are, very far from impossible to solve. If that was the best the generals could do, then they were the wrong generals. And if you're still in any doubt, what happens next will convince you. The proposal to launch a major attack on the Germans, which became the Battle of the Somme, originated at a conference in December 1915 at Chantilly, which was the HQ of the French Commander-in-Chief, Joseph Joffre. The strategy was to launch major attacks simultaneously, the French and British on the Western Front, the Russians on the Eastern Front and the Italians in the South. The assembled generals believed that the Germans would not long be able to withstand fighting on this scale. Well, the British agreed with some reluctance. 
As we see in our series on why Britain went to war in 1914, a small caucus in the cabinet, prodded by the army general staff, had started the war with a very small army, expecting the conflict to last just a few months. Literally within hours, General Kitchener, however, had disabused them all. The war, he predicted, would go on for three years and victory would demand a force of a million men. Well, at once there was a call for volunteers, and within a couple of months, nearly half a million men had come forward. But training took time. Kitchener stuck to his prediction they would not be ready to defeat the Germans for three years, and that meant 1917. In the meantime, they would do the best they could to support the French and contain the German invasion in Belgium and northern France. And it was the French, with a much larger army, who would call the shots. This was certainly not the short largely naval war the British Parliament and public had been asked to support in August 1914. Check out our series. As we've seen at the start of the war, the Germans advanced and then retreated and dug themselves into all the strategically advantageous positions. Since neither the French nor the British had scandalously done any thinking at all about the well-established problem of entrenched warfare, they found it impossible to shift the Germans. By the end of 1915, the French were becoming anxious about how long they could go on losing men without any sign of a breakthrough. Back in London, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Reginald McKenna, was becoming anxious about how much longer the British could go on borrowing money without a breakthrough, especially in the United States, where Britain was spending millions each month to keep its war effort going. Some kind of significant victory was therefore essential, both for the French, who cared about their men, and for the British, who cared about their money. But it would have to be a compromise. It was an entire year earlier than Kitchener and the British generals wanted. Well, various plans were discussed with the French over the coming months. And then in February, the Germans launched a major attack on the French stronghold of Verdun. Now, we always used to be told... And the National Army Museum website still says... ...that the attack on the Somme was therefore moved forward by several weeks to save the French. And if it was poorly organised, well, that was understandable. But this is just another feeble army excuse. Historians established decades ago that the 1st of July was the date the English and French had agreed for the attack on the Somme weeks before the Germans had ever launched their attack on Verdun. So teachers, if you're listening... If anything, they'd they'd agreed a date even earlier. In May, they'd originally agreed to go. The French, in fact, welcomed the German attack on Verdun since they believed it would damage the German army more than theirs. It simply would mean that fewer French troops could be spared for the summer attack on the Somme, which meant that it would become more of a British battle, even though its location and its timing were more to the French liking than to the British. But as we've seen, the absolute need for an attack in the summer of 1916 presented Haig with a very serious problem. In the light of the failures of 1915, he had demanded over 1,700 heavy guns. In practice, he had... 227. 227 that were any practical use. The British had far too little artillery on the Somme to make the planned infantry attack in the slightest way feasible. Haig's plan was, according to all the facts at his disposal, according to what he'd said the year before and earlier in 1916, above all, according to everything that was then known about artillery completely impossible to put into action. It was even worse than anything the British had been attempting to do so disastrously in 1915. So what was this terrible plan? Well, recent attempts among military historians to revive the reputation of Douglas Haig have focused particularly on what his intentions were at the Battle of the Somme. Did Haig, as his detractors have long alleged, try to attempt a complete breakthrough? a crazy, utterly impossible advance right through the German lines and forcing 
the Germans to abandon their trenches and fight in the open. Well, that would have been hopelessly, inconceivably, I mean, immeasurably, incomprehensibly beyond what his heavy <laughs> artillery could even attempt it, to do. No sane commander would ever have attempted such a thing. Or was Haig trying to pursue much more realistic objectives within the compass of the few heavy guns he had? Remember, he only had 227. He wanted 1,700. Well, mostly this debate has, understandably enough, focused on statements that Haig made to various people or wrote in his diary at the time. So let's have a listen to what Haig was saying. At the start of June 1916, Haig told the British Prime Minister and other people in London and the British Ambassador in Paris and his Chief of Staff at HQ in Flanders yep, that the Battle of Somme had strictly limited objectives. Quotes, the object of our attack is to relieve pressure on Verdun. In other words, to draw German troops away from their big attack on the French. Well, so far, so very sensible. By the end of the Battle of the Somme, that's December 1916, or according to his dispatches... Which were carefully edited by his secretary after the war... Haig was saying that the Battle of the Somme had all been a carefully calibrated part of the long-term strategy of, quotes, wearing down the Germans bit by bit. The philosophy was, if the Germans kept losing more men than the British and French, then in the end, the British and French would win. This was the so-called strategy of attrition that some historians believe Haig and the rest of the British Army had been pursuing since the end of 1914. In December 1916, so that's the end of the Battle of the Somme, Haig was saying that during the battle, the British Army had been too untrained to achieve anything more than wear down the Germans a bit. So that had been his strategy. Now, we may detect a certain shuffling of Haig's feet between June and December of 1916, uh, relieve the French or wear down the Germans. Uh, but either way, Haig was saying that his aims on the Somme were and always had been limited, and also that he had achieved them. The problem is, while he was making these official statements, these sensible statements about limited achievements, Haig was talking in private in very much more grandiose terms. In the summer of 1916, General Haig was facing a very serious problem. He had to launch some kind of large-scale attack, both to take the pressure off the French army and assuming he won some kind of victory, to keep Britain's financial credit in America good enough to go on borrowing for the war. But Haig, according to his own analysis from the year before, entirely lacked the heavy artillery to take any kind of serious offensive action. Well, Haig's supporters have concluded he therefore came up with a limited plan, enough to distract the Germans a bit from their attacks on the French, and enough to go on wearing down the German army a little bit. But on the 27th of June 1916... Just two days before the attack was originally due to start. Haig visited Sir Henry Rawlinson, the man in command of the 4th Army, the force that would actually fight the Battle of the Somme. Haig was astonished to discover, he wrote in his diary, that Rawlinson, quotes, has ordered his troops to halt for an hour and consolidate on the enemy's last line exclamation mark. Yes, there's actually an exclamation mark in Haig's diary. What Haig called the last line was the third line of German defences. Quotes, I directed him to prepare for a rapid advance, and as soon as the last line had been gained, to push on. OK, let's get this straight. We're talking here about plans for the first 
day of the attack. Yeah. Haig is telling Rawlinson, the man in charge of the force who will launch the attack, to break right through all three lines of German entrenched defences on the first day and even then to keep going, to advance even further. Later on that day, 27th of June... Just to remember, two days before the attack was originally due to begin... Haig was ticking off his friend, General Hubert Goff. Now, Goff was in command of reserves on the Somme. He was making preparations for a battle at the town of Bapaume. But Bapaume was eight miles behind the German front line and it would take by a long way the biggest breakthrough of the entire war to reach it. But what Haig was actually saying to Goff was that he didn't want him to get stuck at Bapaume. He wanted him to push on even further. By midnight on that day, 27th of July, just 31 hours before the attack was originally due to start, it was delayed a little bit because of weather, plans had been drawn up accordingly. Haig had his forces gearing up to crash through all the German defences and to advance miles beyond them in one day. And it gets worse. Only a few days before, Haig had been instructing his cavalry to ride right through to Douai, which was 70 miles behind the German lines. They would, Haig explained, fight quotes on the lines of 1806. Which was in fact when Napoleon Bonaparte had defeated the Prussian army at the Battle of Jena. <laughs> well, do, you know, do you know that Haig's sister, Henrietta, was a medium who claimed to be passing on messages for her brother from Napoleon himself? That explains it all. We now know that the differences between Haig's public very sensible and private, completely insane pronouncements, at least before the battle, came about because his plans changed significantly in the middle of June 1916. And that was because of intelligence he was getting. Historian Jim Beach's excellent study of Haig's intelligence shows that news came in between the 4th and the 14th of June that seemed to show German troops moving east to face new attacks by the Russians. It was also suggested that those who moved in to replace them on the Somme had come down from the terrible battle going on at Verdun and were therefore exhausted. Now, Haig's intelligence chief was Brigadier General John Charteris, an old friend of Haig's, a fellow Scot, fellow Presbyterian and fellow Freemason. Christopher Andrews, official historian of British intelligence, points out that Charteris, who was widely thought to be arrogant and inept... Hmm, sounds familiar. Broke one of his own cardinal rules during the Battle of the Somme. Never give in, he used to tell fellow officers, to the desire to please your senior commanders. But, says Andrews, quotes, Charteris' intelligence reports throughout the five-month Battle of the Somme were designed to maintain Haig's morale. Though one of the intelligence officer's duties may be to help maintain his commander's morale, Charteris crossed the frontier between optimism and delusion, end of quote. So what Christopher Andrews is saying is that Charteris was telling Haig what he wanted to hear, which was a million miles from the truth. It was wildly over-optimistic. The Germans always had far more reserves on the Somme than Charteris realised or let on until much later. Now it begins to be a bit more clear why Haig's plans became enormously more ambitious. But that's no excuse. Even allowing Haig to have been badly advised by his hand-picked old friend, the plan Haig came up with was still wrong-headed to the point of being insane or criminal. Haig seemed to believe that the key to the battle was the number of men he had and the number he thought the Germans had. The fewer the Germans apparently had, 
the more ambitious the British plan should be. But this was cuckoo land. As every intelligent soldier had understood since at least the middle of 1915, this war was not being decided by numbers of men. It was being decided by the numbers of heavy guns. The key to successful infantry assault was the artillery bombardment that preceded it. If you didn't destroy the German defences first, especially their artillery and the dugouts where their machine gun crews were sheltering, attempting any kind of attack was suicide. But that was exactly what Haig was telling his officers to do. With the results, well, we shall see next time at the History Café. For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or you can contact us on social media at History Café Pod. And don't forget that it's easy to listen to a whole series. You just use the playlist you can find on SoundCloud and Spotify. There are 60 episodes and building. <laughs>